God-centered and, and beautiful like this passage uh, with theological term after another that just thrills, thrills our soul. And today I hope that it's not just a, uh, a theological um, discussion, but I hope it's one that really humbles and melts our heart to, uh, um, to the degree God would have us. Josh? Yeah, so why don't we go ahead and look at the passage here. We're jumping back in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start back in uh, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, thank you for giving us another week to dive into these uh, wonderful truths, phenomenal truths that are revealed in your word. Lord, I pray that we would come to an accurate understanding of what they mean and that the Spirit would pierce our hearts and, and uh, allow us to grow in our knowledge of the gospel and the good news. And I ask this in Jesus' name. So, <clears throat> Um, just by way of review, as we get going, verses 21 and 23 established a couple of things for us. And um, we looked at last week, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's in verse 21. So that in, in space and time and history, the, at the cross of Christ, God's righteousness was manifested. And uh, Paul tells us that this took place apart from the law. So there was a righteousness of God available apart from the law. And it was also foretold in the prophets, uh, in verse 21, and in the law. And this righteousness comes through faith, and specifically faith in Jesus. And it's also available to all. And so now, 20, verses 24 through 26 beg the question, how is this possible? How can this actually work? So Paul's labored all throughout the first couple chapters all are equally condemned because of sin. And now he's talking about a righteousness uh, manifested apart from the law. How can this be? And our verses will kind of peel the layers back into uh, the, I guess, maybe you could say the economics of how this actually works. And um, there really is a world of theology here. One commentator called this the Acropolis of the Christian faith. I wasn't sure what Acropolis meant, but it sounds impressive. Uh, it does sound impressive. I think it's you know it's the high point of the Christian faith. There, there, there is uh, Martin Lloyd Jones said we can be certain that there is nothing that the human mind can ever consider, which is in any way as important as these verses. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, nothing that we can conceive of is as important as these verses. Which just makes it fascinating, Josh, that we get it get in on this mm -hmm. and that we get a camp on it for 45 minutes on a, on a Sunday afternoon. I just hope we, we really feel so blessed and privileged and overwhelmed uh, by this opportunity. Six times, hadn't realized this, 21 to 31, 
six times it's by faith, right? Being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. We see that six times from 20, 21 to, to 31. So you might remember that overall, if we can say the Bible for sure is the best book ever written, you would, could argue that Romans, I'm arguing, that is the best of those 66 in there in a lot of ways. In most important, you can't say one's more important. And then this passage, you narrow it down to say maybe the most important or the most God-centered theological uh, paragraph ever written, and this is what we get a feast on today. But it's by faith, and you remember the theme that how are we right with God? That's the question that he's answering. Uh, Grant, got something? I think come back to me on that. Okay, yeah. coming back. Yeah. So, Josh, help us start <laughs> now with this 24 on justification. Because if you're just talking about one meaty verse, that verse 24 has some really key words there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I was interested, and I think it might have been Boyce, it might have been somebody else, that said, why is 23 right where it is? You know, because you just get started with the good news, and then he's back. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Almost when you feel like you're done with that thought for a little bit, he comes right back to it. And he just said that that really makes grace gracious. I don't know if he put it like that. But all of a sudden, you get another reminder of how gracious God is, knowing that we have all fallen short. Oh, man, it was a good quote um, by somebody there that said, uh, every being comes in last. Every human being comes in last as far as the glory of God is concerned. Every human being comes in last. Like they're just, we're just not close to that. Right, if long if we were shooting a uh, a bow and arrow arrow at the target, you know, sin is missing the mark. That bullseye is the only way to for God's glory. That's perfection, and none of us. It's like we're shooting at the bullseye, and it's in Alaska, and we can get it to maybe that tree out there. So we're not even getting close um, to that justification. Though we are justified, verse twenty four. By his grace, as a gift. Start us there, Josh. Yeah, I don't really have much on that. Maybe I would like to talk about redemption here when we get to it, though. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, okay. Just in case. So, you know, we've talked about how important this is, but I do think that these verses are probably the heart of the gospel. There's a lot that is involved in the good news of Jesus Christ, but this would be, as you know, as Josh, you said, the, the economics of it, like how it works, the heart of it. Um, and if you start losing some of these, especially propitiation, and we'll discuss these, if you start losing them, you start losing the actual gospel. It starts falling apart into something altogether different. So uh, I think this, these verses that we're covering today, or at least 20, 24 and 25, could be separated into three major terms. One would be uh, justified, justification. The other would be redemption, and the other would be propitiation by his blood. And so we can start with just a couple of definitions. You may already know what these are, but I think it's important to know uh, the theological term that we're talking about to understand really what's going on. So justification would be the act of showing or declaring someone in the right, in this case before God. Redemption is the act of gaining possession of someone in exchange for a payment or liberation by a price 
or a ransom. Now that one can be a little bit tricky depending on how you on how you take it, and we'll get into that a little bit. But and then the third would be propitiation, which is the satisfaction. Which, uh, um, Ligonier actually just says it simply means satisfaction or the turning away from anger, the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath to incur divine favor. And that one is extremely important when it comes to the gospel. I think if we lose that one, we really lose what the gospel is. And then, not explicitly in this, but but wrapped up in propitiation and justification um, and in the gospel itself would be expiation, which is the removal of sin and the guilt that goes with sin. And so justification would be a gift of God where he declares us in his courtroom as sinless, as right, as, as righteous, that there is no charge that could be brought against us in his courtroom, even though we are sinful. And so I think that begs the big question of how can God do that and still be just? How can he just expiate or remove our sins from us and say, you are actually righteous in my sight, um, even though we're not, we're, we're guilty to to call people that are guilty righteous would be a crooked judge in Proverbs. That would be an abomination to the Lord. So how can God be just and justify the sinner? So I think that's the big question that we're getting at today. Yeah, good. And to be declared righteous is what God does is completely different. I think it's a huge differentiation here that's not to be made righteous. Right. Right? That's a whole different... Grant, do you have something on that? No, that, disagreeing with you. It's, yeah, it's just a declaration. Yeah, that is a big thing. And so it's not because if we would say it's to be made righteous, then the first unrighteous thing that we do later on in 10 minutes here, then all of a sudden isn't, then we've lost our justification. But this is so thorough, and it's such a declaration. It's as God pounds the gavel of heaven and declares you righteous, even though we continue to act practically unrighteous, right? So positionally we're righteous, and then our our goal then in 6 to 8, we're going to get there in uh, July, August, and September, we're going to talk about how then we let our practice equal our position. And that's what positionally we are. And so there's really two parts to this. Um, I love this. I'm kind of 50-50 on which is more exciting. But uh, both of them involve our Lord Jesus. You can guess that. First he died, okay, and through the shedding of blood, through the shedding of his blood, he has forgiven every sin, all right? Every sin that we've done, past, present, future sins. Those are all wiped as far as the east is from the west, right? Those have been um, taken, and not as far as the north is from the south. Because that would be a measurable distance, right? You get to the North Pole, and then you go south, north, south, north, south. East, 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 right? On your globe, back in the 40s, they, those, you go all the way. So when the psalmist writes that, psalmist, who writes that? Psalmist. I don't know that he even knows that that's, there's a pole, you know, eastern, north, or south pole. But God in his... Uh, perfect wisdom tells us those sins have been washed away. It's never, ever, ever, ever to be. And Bridges says he doesn't forget them. He chooses not to remember them. It's not forgotten. He chooses not to remember. I think that's good. When uh, um, Bridges is talking about propitiation, he says he exhausts 
God's perfect wrath. His wrath has been exhausted when we get to propitiation. So that's the first part, is that when Jesus died for our sin, that wiped us clean from that sin. It really put a zero. If you're thinking about a spiritual number line, you are now zero on that number line. They're no longer in the negative. You could argue to say, well, was I infinitely in the negative? Yes, in that every one of our sin, right, falls short of the glory of God. We were storing up God's wrath. So in that way, the unbelievers storing up a little. Like I'm thinking of your spiritual bank account that you get every night, right? In the mail, you get your spiritual bank account. The unbelievers, I think in one way, has the negative sideways eight, right? They're infinitely in the wrath because one of their sin against the infinitely holy God means infinite punishment. But in another way, they're storing up more with each sin, all right, on, the, on that deal. But here's what's really neat. That's not the only part of justification. By Jesus' death, he put a zero on the number line, but through his life, all of that righteousness, all of those perfect 33 years, he didn't parachute in and die on the cross, right? On At one time, he lived 33 perfect years. And that, too, through justification, has been imputed or credited, fancy word for credited, to our account. It's an accounting term. So now our bank account, when it used to show infinitely sideways eight, every day after you're justified, you get that spiritual bank account in the email, and it is sideways eight in the amount. And you're like, uh-oh, but wait a second. They don't, you know, did someone not know what I did today, right? But when you have an infinite amount of righteousness that Christ lived to impute to our account, let's say there's 100,000 points of sin. Infinite minus 100,000 equals what? Still infinite. And so that is how thorough justification is. So there's two parts. He died for the first part to bring us to zero on the number line. He lives and to make you, not to make you, to declare you infinitely righteous. And that's through, that's through justification. And that is a legal declaration that when we get to chapter 8, when he argues that, that can't be overturned. Like, if God's for us, who can be against us? That's going to be so, it's so thorough. Enjoy justification. Why do we enjoy it? Because it's true. You have been declared righteous. So let's let our practice equal our position. But that positionally is who we are. We have a new status, a legal declaration in heaven. I. Luther, I want to read these couple quotes. You wouldn't be surprised that Luther's talking about this, right? Wasn't that as big? Where's Papa Fred when we need him? Luther, not surprisingly, called justification the master, the prince, the lord, the ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrine. That wasn't surprising, right? From Luther, Calvin called it the main hinge on which salvation turns. And so it is an incredible. Now, hold on one second, though. It's by grace. Look at back in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Almost redundant, right? Where grace is undeserved favor, and it's as a gift. But when you think of grace, I think I underestimate how gracious this is. I need to read another quote on grace. This was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones again. 
There is no more wonderful word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness. Now, but this second part, hit me. Shown to one who is utterly undeserving. Okay, so you could almost call it anti-grace or anti-favor. We deserve the other, but we get God's favor. It is not merely a free gift to those who deserve, but to those who deserve the exact opposite. So it's given to us while we're without hope and without God in this world. You think about, and this is graphic, but I don't know how else to say it. It's uh, very humbling to think about this. Someone comes in and, let's say, makes you watch as they murder your whole family. Again, I know this is graphic, but I just I think it, we have to find some way to think through this. And they you, they brutally just murder your whole family while you have to have to watch and they leave for about a half an hour maybe they've tied you up or whatever and you're you're there just overwhelmed with grief over what's just happened and they come back and they say hey you know what you've got some empty beds now you've got some uh food in the fridge could i uh could i stay could i stay here with you now and you would be Like overwhelmed, like what are you asking? You just murdered my whole family, but is that not what God did? We murdered his son, and what does he do? He adopts us into his family. He sacrifices his son by grace and graciously, not because of what's deserved, what is absolutely undeserved, says not only have I forgiven you for what you've done, but I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to call you my own. I'm going to clean you up so that you don't do that anymore. I'm going to change you foundationally and positionally so that now you can begin to be different. And you just say, oh, it's overwhelming. And it's, by, it's a gift. And so what does that mean? That means that we could never, ever, ever boast about it. And doesn't it mean that we should be humble about this? 3.23 again is a reminder, this is not deserved. We all fall short of the glory of God. Grant on redemption, what do you have? Because this is a, we, if we had an hour, we could camp on this for an hour too. Yeah, that's, that was really good. And I think it's important to see that it's it's by grace as a gift, and that gift also through Jesus Christ, who was not an unwilling victim of the cross. He willingly, in his perfection, went on our behalf as a sacrifice for us to absorb the wrath of the Father. So it wasn't just um, him as a victim. It was him conquering on the, on the cross. But um, And then that's through. All of that is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, Josh, actually, do you want to get us started, started on redemption? Sure. I sure can. Cut me off at any point here. But um, like you were saying, Grant, and that was really, really good just to think about um, what God did. But redemption, huge concept. But the basic idea with redemption, when Paul's using this term, it's a slave market term. And he's capturing the idea that this redemption that's in Christ is um, Christ 
purchasing us from the slave market of sin. He's re he has redeemed us from a life characterized by sin, and he's purchased us out of that. And um, what was new to me is um, it, Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, he promises to give his life as a ransom for many. So I think there's uh, some dualistic action going on here. Not only is Christ our Redeemer, the person who pays the price, I think his life is the actual ransom price mm -hmm. as well. So he paid the price, uh, which was his own life, someone to measure up to God's perfect standards and absorb God's wrath for not measuring up. And um, this payment is not to anybody else but God. Uh, you know, as you were saying at the start, this is so God-centered and God-oriented uh, from, from start to finish. And uh, he, he is the person who paid the price, and it was a huge price, and not, not a price that we could pay. We, we cannot... Uh, redeem ourselves or, or pay the ransom price that was uh, deserved for us. Yeah, didn't you? You probably heard that quote. You, we uh, owed a price we couldn't pay. He paid um, the price that he didn't know. And that's, that's, again, by grace, Grant. Yeah, that's. I think that's really good to understand that when we're redeemed or we're ransomed, what we're ransomed from. And I think, like, I think just listening to what Peter says here, it sounds so similar to what we're talking about in Romans. Um, I think this is First Peter 1, 19, maybe. <laughs> and if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout, the, throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we were purchased with a great cost, not like with jewels and gold, but with the precious, infinitely pure blood of Christ. And we were ransomed not from the devil, but from our bondage of sin mm -hmm. that we inherited from being a descendant of Adam. I think we'll get to that in chapter 5, but I think that's so important because... How many of y'all have seen the American Gospel documentary? The first one. Most of... A lot of you. How many of you have seen the second one? just two so yeah I, I didn't really hear about it either but that second one I rewatched it recently is so good because it's dealing with this topic and one of the things that we can get into a mistake that a lot of times we'll see probably if you've ever read C.S. Lewis I don't know what his view is on this but he presented it uh, more so that we're being ransomed from the devil with Aslan going to the, the stone table and the white rich killing and he purchases Edwin back from or Edward back from from Satan. But I think here it's very clear that we are ransomed from our bondage to sin, the sin that we inherited from our forefathers. And I think that's that's very important. And that whole documentary you will see it, it deals with justification by faith alone. It deals with uh, our our ransom, the ransom theory, and then it also deals with propitiation and what happens when each of these start faltering, especially on propitiation, if we start faltering, faltering there, things start unwinding, and you see the, the people that they're interviewing throughout this process that would have, would have claimed it, would have claimed penal substitutionary atonement, which is just another way of talking about propitiation, they, they would have championed that in the past, then they're unsure on that specific point, and then they start just falling apart, and then eventually most of them in the, in the film, they don't... I, at the point of the interview, they don't believe in the gospel at all. They're just secular humanists. They just believe in good things. 
for no really real purpose. So it's amazing to see these theological terms are so important for us to have uh, as crystal clear as we can as we can possibly get them. That's good, Josh. Yeah, I think that I was reading Jerry Bridges in that book, Gospel for Real Life. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's a good book. And um, he makes these ideas very clear, but he's got a lot of stories to go with them. And he tells this one story, um, and, he, and he quotes Galatians 4, 4 and 5. I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, which says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So there's this idea of redemption. But the verse continues, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I know this isn't maybe in our passage per se, but adoption is part of this. It's another uh, benefit of being redeemed. God doesn't just pull us or rescue us, redeem us from the bondage of sin, but then he offers us full adoption uh, he told a story in that book about a man on death row, uh, awaiting his execution, awaiting his um, punishment. And day after day, he spends on, on death row. And one day, the judge comes in and flings open the door and says, uh, the price has been paid, you are set free. But then, as he's walking out the door, he offers him adoption papers to come and live with him not just to go back out into the world, but to be a part of his own family. And that's very much what God does for us. Yep, good. Just in case we just, I don't want us to just think about this as intellectual understanding, which is huge. It's huge that we do that. But it seems that this is very applicable to life, I think, when we think about it. So let's take a step back a little bit. I think most of us would say, that um, we give lip service into the idea that we're dead in our transgressions and sins and that we have a complete inability to submit to God's law, right? Romans 8, 7, that we're hostile to God. We don't submit to God's law. Indeed, we cannot. Those who want to live according to the sinful nature cannot please Christ. Zero of our actions would ever please him. But even though we deserve hell, um, we're saved, justified, redeemed, regenerate, adopted, rescued, rescued might almost be the best word that we can almost think that somehow, and I don't know how this happens, but it happens to me, it might happen to you. Somehow I almost think that God owes me something now. Now that he's done all that, I've almost, we might say, whoa, wait a second, no, 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 I don't think that. But then I think, okay, if I say I don't think that, have we ever complained? Have we ever complained ever? Well, if we're complaining, what are we doing? We're saying, God, you really haven't done quite enough here yet. And I really deserve this too. I deserve a better supper. I deserve a different car. I deserve better parents. I deserve a different circumstance of some kind or another. So I think in humility... Once we read this and once we think about this, it's got to change our disposition toward all of life changes. There is nothing else to complain about because, and you've maybe heard this quote, but I think it's so good. Remember that the proud man or woman is often complaining that he doesn't have more. 
While the humble man or woman, anyone who considers these doctrines, the humble man or woman is continually amazed that they don't have less. Right? So if we're proud, we're always thinking we're, we're thinking entitlement. I deserve a little bit more here. But the humble one will realize that everything we have is by grace. It is a free gift of God. Completely undeserved. And that's very moving. I love the, uh, the idea here. And I hadn't put this together very much. But from Ruth, remember the kinsman redeemer, Boaz and uh, Ruth. Uh, I'll bet you this was Boyce. But he said this about redemption before we move to propitiation. Is uh, three things had to happen. First of all, it had to be a close relative. A stranger would not do. You couldn't get redeemed except if it was a close relative. Uh, and in that, Jesus is now our, our brother in, in that way. He had to be willing to take on the responsibility. Nobody could com be compelled to do this work. Jesus willingly sacrificed his life, didn't he? It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's the part of redemption there. Number three, he had to be able to pay the ransom price. So he had to have sufficient means at his disposal to do it. And only Jesus could do that. Why? Because he was the only one that was perfect. Anybody else that died would have been paying for their own sins. When Jesus died for us and wiped our sins as far as the east is from the west, put a zero on the number line, and then with his life put us infinitely righteous on the number line positionally, that was only Christ could have done that. And Grant, what a great point that when Jesus paid that price, it was for God's wrath. He took away God's wrath. The payment was for God. And God accepted that payment. And how do we know? Because Jesus was resurrected. The resurrection shows that God accepted that payment. That was all that was needed to be done. When Jesus says, it is finished, that was it. He took care of it all. How about propitiation? I know you guys have enjoyed that this week. Mm -hmm. It's been really good. You want to start? Or what? You start. Okay. Stuff. Yeah, so I think propitiation is a hinge upon which a lot of the gospel stands or falls if we start losing that. I've said that you know, maybe too many times in this talk, but um, <clears throat> first I think we need to understand what is propitiation. So why did God put forward uh, Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith? So the question would be, why doesn't God just forgive us? Why not just expiate our sins, cover it, say this is... I, I'm Almighty God. I can forgive that, um, which He can't. There, there must be punishment for wrongdoing for Him to be a just God. If He's going to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, there must be some sort of payment or punishment for that sin. And so, propitiation again is the satisfaction or turning away from anger, the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath to incur divine favor. So, this is also from Ligonier. Propitiation. It means that Christ, in His perfect life, an atoning substitutionary death that he satisfies the wrath of God against our sin and against us. It wasn't that he simply satisfied or assuaged God's wrath against sin. He assuaged God's wrath against us. Uh, this is from an interview. And so, you know, people want to say, well, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Well, I understand what people mean by that, but we have to understand it's not just the sinner. It's not just the sin that God sends to hell. 
He sends people to hell. And mm-hmm. I remember one time in discussion group many years ago at the McAndrews, we talked about that for a while because that was that was troubling to a lot of people. And Miss Elizabeth actually said that very sentence that God doesn't send the sin he doesn't send the sin to hell, he sends the sinner. So there must be a payment. Um, and I've remembered that ever since. And so with this, you know, the word propitiation, it only shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. Um, one is here, another time is in First John, and another time is in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it's actually talking about the mercy seat, which we know from the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And so this is also from Ligonier. It says, God gave a distinct set of instructions for the ark's lid in Exodus 25, 17 through 22, called the Kaparit. I don't know how to pronounce that in Hebrew. Uh, when the Old Testament was translated into Latin, this word was translated as propitiatorium, which means the place of propitiation. The standard English translation is the mercy seat. So we know from the Ark of the Covenant, the, um, the lid of that, the covering uh, upon, like, where they put inside the uh, Aaron's staff that budded and the Ten Commandments and I think a, a thing of the manna. Uh, then there's the lid on top and there's the cherubim on each end with their wings overstretching and then there's the mercy seat uh, is the lid where God meets with his people. And so I wanted to just talk about that uh, a little bit, describing that uh, from Exodus. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And so the, the cherubim were looking over there, and then uh, skipping forward it says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I gave, give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So that's where the Lord would speak from and meet with his people, is above the mercy seat. Um, and that was an important for the Day of Atonement. So when there was a sacrifice made, there was blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So Aaron would have to sacrifice a bull for his sins, if I'm getting this correct. Uh, it's in um, Exodus. You can, you can check me on this. Uh, there's several sacrifices, so I may get them mixed up. But you know, for his own sin and the sin of his household, he would have to sacrifice a bull, sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat so that he could go in. He'd have a cloud of incense that would go before him um, to, to block him from the mercy seat so he wouldn't die. And then also there was the two goats, the one of which the Aaron would pronounce the sins of Israel onto the head of the goat, and then they would take it away out into the wilderness uh, to be uh, expiated for the sins to be taken away. But there was also the goat that was sacrificed, and just like the bull, the blood was put onto the mercy seat as a propitiation for the sins of Israel. So there was both expiation and propitiation. There was the removal of sin from the people, and there was the sacrifice for the sin that had to take place above the mercy seat, or the blood was put on the mercy seat. Um, Y'all want to jump in? I mean, there's still more I would like to get to. This is what, go ahead. Listen, when Josh and I don't know how to explain something, then we just text Grant and say, Grant, would you (laughs) take this and and run? This is is so good. But you're going to get to the publican too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm getting good. This is really good. If I'm not connecting anything, please interrupt me because this is very important to get. This is is extremely important in terms of the gospel. So um, we know that from this, there had to be a punishment for sin. So God, it's not that um, God just took someone to, instead of saying, you're guilty, I'll just... I'll just kill this other person. You know, that's the thing that the American gospel, the second movie is dealing with is, is God just some sort of monster that he just has to be appeased. And so therefore he killed Christ unwillingly 
so that we could be ransomed to him. But that's, that's far from it. God put him forward. So it's from God. Um, in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God made the atoning sacrifice. He provided his own lamb, and Christ went willingly to that sacrifice. And it's always been that way. Um, here are some things that show the, uh, that Jesus is our propitiating sacrifice or that God would supply his own lamb. So one would be from Genesis 22. Um, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Mm-hmm. To which Abraham responded, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then there's the Passover lamb without blemish or spot, whose blood saved the people it covered from the judgment of God through the death of their firstborn. Um, and then several times John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. So in, uh, I think it's John 1, the next day, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Who, uh, behold, the Lamb of God. So Christ is also presented in Revelation as the Lamb that was slain. And when Mary comes into the tomb, I never want to overdo this, but it just is so descriptive that Mary sees two angels sitting on the head and the foot, and it describes it as the head and the foot of where Jesus' body was laying, which to me just seems to be pointing to the mercy seat. You have the two cherubim with their wings overstretched, the mercy seat. This showing that God, or that Jesus is the propitiating sacrifice. He's the lamb that was slain, but he's also the mercy seat where we can now meet with God through him. Um, this is um, what I can't remember the guy's name from Ligonier but he has an article about this that says now all we need to do is connect the dots God desires to meet with his people and the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is made possible the mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come Christ did come and Christ did make the sacrifice and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistake about it. These are historical realities. The tabernacle was real. The Ark of the Covenant was real. The mercy seat was real. The cross was real. The empty tomb was real. And a real woman stooped to look at real angels. Christ is our mercy seat. Therein and through Christ, God meets us. The dots are connected. I thought that was so good. And if you just want me to keep going, this was also extremely helpful with, uh, you called him the publican? That, well, the tax collector okay. or the publican, I yeah. guess, and maybe that was old King James. Yeah, so I've never heard that. Him not the Republican. This guy was the publican, wasn't he? Yeah, the so. Pharisee. Tax yeah. collector. Yeah, tax collector. I, yeah. I had never heard this. this. That parable has always been difficult for me. It's where you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're both uh, praying, and the tax collector says, you know, thank God I'm not, I don't remember exactly what he says, that I'm not like, uh, I don't commit adultery, and I'm not like this tax collector. And then the tax collector wouldn't even look up, but just beats his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he went away justified. And I've never really quite understood the inner workings of that, but this helped me so much from Boyce, and I'm just going to read it. Um, so in Luke 18:13, he says, God, be merciful, merciful to me. And that actually would be the same word as propitiated to me. God be mercy seated to me. God be propitiated to me. It's the same word in Hebrews that is translated propitiation or propitiate. Um, 
And Boyce says this, consider the beginning and ending of the prayer. The first word is God. The last word is sinner. These alone are profound because they show what results when human beings actually become aware of the true God. When anyone becomes conscious of God, he does not proceed um, unchanged in his supposed righteousness as the Pharisee did. It is how we know that the Pharisee did not know God. Rather, he is conscious of sin, and the more so, the closer to God he comes. We know that despite his reputation, the tax collector knew God because he came to God as a sinner. Then this is the great part of the prayer. Between the beginning of the prayer, God, and the end of it, me, a sinner, are the words, have mercy on me, or be mercy seated to me. Can you see what was involved? The, the tax collector did not only know God and know himself as a sinner, the starting point of all true religion. He also knew the heart of the gospel since he understood propitiation. He knew that between the presence of a holy God who looked down in judgment upon the law that he had broken and upon himself, there needed to come the blood of the sacrificial victim. And this meant that he was not actually pleading for mercy, though it's, the prayer sounds like it, but he was coming to God on the basis of the mercy already provided by God through the sacrifice. He was saying, treat me on the basis of the blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, which I just thought was so helpful in understanding uh, that parable and the value of propitiation. Yeah, thanks, Josh. That was really helpful. Um, maybe one thing I can add here. I thought John Stott was really insightful when he contrasted the pagan idea of propitiation versus the biblical idea. And I think, you know, he contrasts them in three different categories. And I think when you see it, you know, put against one another, you see the biblical picture that's there in our text. Um, and then, you know, I've heard you talk about that documentary, The American Gospel 2, about, the, you know, I think some of these even pagan notions can be carried on possibly today. They might sneak into our thinking a little bit. But here's what Stott says. Our, our, our need for propitiation, the pagan idea would be that the gods are ill-tempered, they're subject to moods or fits of anger. But when you look at the biblical picture, we know that God has a settled, righteous indignation towards sin, and it would be wrong for God to just wink at sin and let it go free. So there, there is a great need for someone to propitiate God or to satisfy his wrath, to appease his wrath. Um, he also highlights the difference in the author. Uh, where does, uh, who does the propitiating? Who is the one that actually satisfies the wrath? And the pagan idea is that we do it by our own sacrifices or our own works or something that we contribute. But biblically, uh, we see that only Christ can, as we mentioned. And we have no power to appease God's wrath. All we have are our works, which are, which are worthless and don't measure up and, in fact, uh, condemn us. And then the nature, Stott says, the nature of how it is done uh, maybe through bribery, the pagans might say, through offerings or sacrifices, but biblically. In the Old Testament, God himself gives the sacrifices or gives the, um, you know, how, how they're carried out, gives a prescri prescription for them. And then in the New Testament, he, in our passage, puts forward Christ. Christ is put forward as a propitiation. And so it's God himself that is accomplishing it. <clears throat> Before you explain the triangle up there, Josh. Let me read two more things about propitiation, but the triangle will be a great way to sum, sum things up. And this came from, didn't you say Martin Lloyd-Jones had that too? I know uh, 
Uh, Steve Lawson. Lawson had it up there, yeah. Good. Um, one more thing on propitiation here, although God's right, and, and Josh mentioned it, it's not like the capricious anger of the pagan deities. His wrath is nevertheless a true and proper wrath against sin. It's a true and proper wrath that must be dealt with. That's on each of us. Remembering we're storing up that wrath from 2-5. We must believe that God's wrath and God's love is not only compatible, but equally important when in understanding God's character. They're, they're, Mark has explained this to us. They're, when you look at the gospel, it's like a diamond. You look at it from all different angles, but God's wrath is equally as great as his love. I think we like talking about his love more, but his wrath is, is equally as important. And although propitiation means turning the wrath of God aside or exhausting God's perfect wrath, as Bridges puts it, uh, in the biblical framework, this is never a case of human beings appeasing the divine wrath, right? We cannot live in a way that's going to bring God more um, favor, gain God's favor. It's only through the Lord Jesus. In Jesus, God placates his own wrath against sin so that his love may go out to save sinners. To mercy seat me a sinner, like uh, Grant explained. The triangle, Josh, in a minute and a half? <laughs> a, it will probably be less. Uh, <laughs> Lawson calls this the multidimensional aspect of Christ's death. And then this, I think, these three ideas in our passage today, when we think about the gospel, we think in, in, a, in a Pauline or in a Roman sense with these ideas. And the death of Christ holds it all together. Uh, so in the three corners, you have God the Father, you have you and I or the sinner or the Christian, and then in the other corner, God the Son. And justification would be between the Father and us. God declares us righteous. And our redemption would be there in between you and I and God the Son. Christ redeems us out of the slave market of sin. And then propitiation. Um, God the Son propitiates the wrath of God the Father. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and in all of that, notice that we're just the recipient. We, don't, we didn't do anything. Except by faith, those six times in 21 through 31... Uh, we receive this by faith, and uh, please enjoy it. It's true. We don't want to go another day without really camping on these just phenomenal truths. And I hope you see that uh, how rich and meaty these words are and how important they are, I think, for our life to be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is the gospel, and these words are not just long words that no one knows how to, to say or think through is the more we think through them, the, the better they get. Grant, could you pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day and for this passage that you have provided that we can know how um, salvation is possible and how you have made it possible for sinners like us. That you Thank you, Father, that you provided the sacrificial lamb in Christ and um, that we were redeemed from our sin, Father. I pray that this would affect us, and Father, I pray that we would all study this more and that if there was anything we said that was not accurate to your word, Father, that it would fall away and that we would come to a clear and right understanding of your gospel through your word alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. In two weeks since Easter, we will take that uh, Sunday off from Sunday school. Um, but next week, we hope to get you to the end of chapter three. So if you have a commentary from, from Stott or Doriani or anybody, um, enjoy that and read that. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back for action next week.